Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome back. Uh, yes, I'm right here. And I am also right here. And we are going to podcast. Yay. This is weekly. And Sorry, I'm doing a Google search right now for mantis shrimp are too stupid to use your cool ass eyes. Yeah, that's that's where we were going with this podcast. That was going to be I one wrote of the it down as a note for something to talk about, but now I don't. I, for some reason, didn't include a link. I okay. I do remember seeing somewhere that they, um, yeah, they don't actually. Their brains aren't big enough to actually see all the process them. Right, because what we all know from uh, an online comic strip is that they have they can see like an online comic strip. Well, most people. Only- no, we've had this conversation like on six podcasts now. Right, but I'm saying like most people only know about the Mantis ship from the comic that the Oatmeal did. Um, and so There's 17 kinds of photoreceptors or something like that. Right. They can see into like infrared and UV and, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I think most people know about it from radio lab. Uh, lab is a bigger viewership. Yeah. Than- I forgot about the radio lab on it. Okay. Um, in any case, they apparently can't do that. I, I actually saw something like a variety of their awesome skills are somewhat exaggerated due to their like small size and, and whatnot. Yeah. Mantis shrimp's eyes have three separate focal points. I can see 13 more colors than dot, dot, dot. This is the, the Google, um, you know, the little excerpt they give you in search results. Dot, dot, dot. To me, makes me believe they're either boiled or steamed and then allowed to cool. Dot, dot, dot. Peeling can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm not going to click through because I don't. I, I prefer what I can make up in my head to whatever it's going to actually be. Yeah. I, uh, regardless, I gather that mantis shrimp are not a particularly fun object to run into and startle. Just because they can hit you in the face with their knuckle? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. Fair enough. So we've covered the mantis shrimp for the week. Uh, that was um, this week in mantis shrimp. Um, what else is new? Um, I don't know. Hey, Mike. Hey. Remember when you spent a thousand bucks on a Black Magic Pocket Cinema camera? I do. It's it's. I don't even know where it is. It's so small. It's easy to lose. <laughs> I would guess that it's um, somewhere charging its battery. Zing. Oh. No. Um. So turns out you can buy one for 500 bucks now that's good um question mark did they did they add uh are the lenses half off now too uh no are the five extra batteries half off now too i i don't believe so uh, so it's really about the same price as before well no it's 500 dollars less you just still have to spend the extra thousand yeah um, well, those lenses are expensive. Yeah. This is, I mean, you have to assume that at some point. So, I'm, I mean, as anyone who's followed us for a while has been able to figure out, I'm not really a business person. <laughs> um, but, isn't that, like, what I, what little I know from auditing my uh, internet fake MBA classes. Um, 
is that aren't you you're supposed to come you're supposed to like drive everything that you rely on to commodity commoditization but not your own products it seems to me with black magic they're doing the exact opposite thing yeah like but i mean aren't they betting on the idea that no one else can like follow them in the race to the bottom and when has that ever worked out uh never i mean maybe it's a maybe they're like losing money so fast that no one wants to compete with them yeah but you have to imagine like okay so like for the average person this didn't change the price that much all it did was like completely i mean how much like so so obviously we know they're making at least a hundred percent markup before um well, I mean, there's two schools of thought on this. The other school is that they're either killing this product or replacing it and need to get rid of a bunch of them. Right. But they're not, there's no way they're, you have to hope that they're not completely changing customer expectations right before launching another $1,000 pocket camera. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that can't go well for them. Um I don't know. I mean, it seems like all of these camera manufacturers are going to end up in a position where, you know, the only people making any money off their products are the people making the lenses. Yeah. And I do wonder what's preventing the commodified lenses. Like, is it really a precision manufacturing issue? I mean, they have, like, I think it's just the starting point was so much worse. Because they have gotten a lot better. I mean, you know, one of the things that really struck me, you know, I haven't really been in the market for lenses in years. Um, you know, I bought the T2i and I just went with like a nice Canon lens when I did that. Um, but, you know, the first DSLR I bought was when I was 15. So like 20 years ago. Um and I was really excited. I bought a nice, like, body, and then I skimped and bought a bunch of used, like, Tamron lenses or something like that. And I shot for a couple years, and then I was like, I just cannot, like, my black and white photography looks fine. I just printed crazy high contrast. But nothing that I shoot in color, like anything I shoot on regular film stock, just it doesn't look like the pictures I see in all the photography magazines. I give up. And it was probably 10, 15 years later, I had that same camera still. And um, a friend of mine who, like, you know, Matt, who's a professional photographer, went to school for photography, used it for a week. And he got the photos back, and they looked just as shitty as mine did. <laughs> And he was like, oh, yeah, this lens is horrible. And I was like, what? So, I mean, I, you know, I think that the, you know, especially you look around at like all of the generic lenses that are out there now, and they're all really good quality. I mean, a lot of people like choose them over the major manufacturers first, you know, because they're, you know, niche characteristics like this one's you know 33 millimeter and has a bigger you know a wider aperture than any of the stock ones um and it seems like you don't 
you know, you don't have a big hit on performance anymore like you used to. So I think it's gotten a lot easier to make a good lens. Mm. And I think the prices have come down a lot. They just haven't come down. You know, there's still a person assembling at least part of the lens every yeah. time. I think that's the big problem. Although that's, that's true, true of an iPhone too. Well, so. and it's true of a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, like I have a uh, Sony NEX 6, I think. I don't see it around here. Um, I think it's a 6. And I dropped it a couple of months ago and uh, dented the lens on the, or the ring on the lens. Um, and it still works fine, but it has a bunch of drag on it now. Mm-hmm. But the cost to replace the lens is basically the cost of the camera, like to buy right. just the lens, yeah. which is ridiculous. Um, and it just seems odd to me. Yeah, I mean... There's been a lot of, you know, it may, it, is it just a, a numbers game? Like, because, you know, because of the nature of lenses, people want lots of different kinds of them. You know, there's never going to be like, oh, this is the lens that you always want for everything. And so we can make them in volume. Right. You know, between the different mounts and the different focal lengths and the different speeds and the different, you know, even Canon's got a couple of different mounts, you know, like maybe, you know, maybe there's just too many skews always to make it up in volume. I don't know. Maybe these guys are rich. Maybe everyone who makes camera lenses is laughing at us. Yeah, maybe. I, I, but it does seem a little crazy. It does. Um, it seems like, especially nowadays, um, with, uh, lens profiling stuff too, you can get away with making a worse lens as long as you have a good workflow and profile. Well, I mean, and we're seeing that, I mean, that's built into some of these cameras now, you know, a lot of the micro four thirds, right? Like what's driven the cost of those things down so much is that they make a, you know, a subpar lens and put a bunch of electronics in the camera to fix it. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, but it seems like we could do more of that. That's kind of what I'm thinking. But I mean, at at the end, like regardless of, yeah, I don't know, actually. Um, How much can you work around focus issues if you know the profile of the lens? You can do, I mean, you can do a focus. I mean, you can essentially model defocus as a convolution kernel. Yeah. And so you can reverse it. Um. What you can't get back is anything that lowers your Nyquist sampling rate. Sure, gotcha. So you can't recover detail. Right, that makes sense. Beyond a certain, beyond like half the resolution of the camera or whatever, the half the resolution of the lens. Um, yeah, that gets into like MTF and all that transfer yeah. functions. Okay. Yeah. But you can do a lot. I mean, you can definitely sharpen things. Yeah. Um, better than just like an unsharp mask like without all the artifacts and the ringing and all that right huh but yeah i mean i think yeah i think we're gonna maybe we want to talk about this i think we're gonna get see a lot of this going forward you know there was always that adage that you can't create data later and i'm just you know i'm starting to not believe that anymore <laughs> i mean well, it's true it's obviously yes. true you cannot make up data but you can fake data that looks right. that looks believable well I mean, I, it doesn't matter if, if it's real data or not if you're 
if your acquisition is so oversampled beyond your delivery, you know, there's a lot more room for making up data, quote unquote. Right. But I mean, it doesn't even, I mean, the point is not to accurately represent the thing that you shot anymore. I mean, the point is to get a good looking image and those are two different things. You know, there is no reason why the final output has to be the right thing. You know, you can add noise, you can remove noise, you can do things to fix the lens distortion. You can, you know, we're looking at things with chroma and if we can recover chroma information. Um, I mean, it seems like you know, there could be a lot more done in that vein. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, part of the problem ends up being if you've got, well, a couple of things. One, if you've got a different camera manufacturer and lens manufacturer and you don't have standards for how they talk to each other about their individual characteristics, that becomes an issue. Sure. Um, and, you know, doing it in camera obviously adds some cost, um, you know, especially for videos compared to stills in terms of compute and in terms of power. Um, and if you don't do it in the computer, then you have this wider workflow issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think from our perspective, it'd be sort of nice if there was like a standard for modeling that data and then they relied on the computer to do it. But yeah. And I mean, you know, it seems like we're headed that way. I mean, that's how raw works in a yep. lot of, you know, that's essentially that what that whole game is. You tell, you know, you embed in the metadata of the file what your sensor looks like and what your lens looks like, and you go from there. Yep. And hopefully we'll see more of that. Or hopefully, you know, we'll see more more information being pulled out of that to fix your image. I wonder how many people who bought the Pocket Cinema camera I guess I wonder what people bought it for um, and if people are actually using it in professional production, in paying gigs, I should say. Yeah. Um, I mean, or, it makes a great second, third camera or like a crash cam or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It makes a really nice crash cam. Yeah. I I just, I wonder what, what their market's been like. I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of people were like you and bought it sort of because it was at a low enough price point that, you could buy it without feeling like it was a huge investment. Right. Um, but I don't get the sense that, you know, it's your favorite thing in the, the world. No, I do like it. And I, you know, I'm more likely when I'm going somewhere or doing something that I would have brought my DSLR to shoot photos. I'm more likely now to bring the pocket cinema and shoot video. Yeah. I mean, not like I, you know, not something like going to, party or something right that but I, I mean that gets back that to I this, photos for yeah but. that gets back to the age-old issue of what the hell do you do with video that you shoot yeah you put it up on a vine yeah yeah huh um so related to that kind of stuff the sony a7s has been making a lot of news lately um you it looks really nice yeah what I've seen. Uh, Philip Bloom's been posting some low light photography or videography from it um, from a beach is the stuff I saw and it was pretty incredible he was shooting at night with just basically you know 
ambient illumination from a you know boardwalk or something but on a, on a beach with just the stars and you know when he cranked up the iso on it it basically looked like daylight yeah in a way that it was almost color and everything else yeah, yeah. i mean it re- reminded me a lot of um some tests that canon did a few years back yeah exactly that you know made nighttime look like daytime just with sensitivity um and i haven't i went did a quick look but um i wasn't seeing much about whether there was anything particularly special about the a7s or whether this is just evolution of sensor and um processing filtering from what i saw it seems like it's the combat i think it's made mostly the sensor design um i mean it's it's a full frame sensor with relatively low number of photosynths i think it's only 12 megapixels yep. so you end up with really big photo sensors yeah um which you know when you combine that with the fact that like you know it wasn't big 10 years ago when they were making 12 megapixel full frame cameras but you know, with all the other advances they've made, driving everything else smaller, I think you just end up. You know, if you half your photo sensors, you end up. You know, inverse square and all that. You end up with a lot more photons hitting yeah. each one, and that drives your signal to noise ratio down dramatically. Right, and then evolution of sensor tech in terms of noise and filtering. Um, yeah, you know. Another case where they've been able to profile, you know, each camera profiles its own sensor and knows what the noise profile is like and can filter based on that as well. Really? Um, they do that? I thought they did. I mean, most still cameras seem to do that nowadays. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. Is that, that So that's not just for, like, dead pixel removal. That's for... No, I don't believe so, no. Speaking How of, does that... do yeah. dead pixels still happen? I think so. I was just thinking that the other day on LCDs because it's been, you know, I've owned, you know are quite a few LCD panels since the last time I had one with a dead pixel. Yeah, me too. I kind of wonder what the numbers are like these days, because it used to be, you know, a pretty high percentage of panels had at least one dead pixel. Yeah. I wonder what yields are like now. Um, But yeah, I think, I I mean, um, even back on my old, uh, my Rebel XT, it had a mode you could put it into where after you took a shot, it then um, closed the shutter and did an equal length exposure with the shutter uh, closed to map the mm. noise profile and then removed that from the source image. But I think they've gotten a lot better in terms of how they're able to model the sensor. Um, I know my NEX6 has a bunch of stuff like that. Wouldn't the noise be stochastic? Wouldn't it just be like... Yeah, I mean, maybe... It would end up in the same place? I, I mean, I, I assume that sensors, in terms huh. of just manufacturing... Sure. End up having a gain and hot stuff. spots and low spots yeah. and yeah. That makes sense. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Hey, speaking of, um, are you gonna get a tattoo for unlocking your phone? Uh this I wow, I yeah. So we'll link to this. It was a what was it, Moto X? Yeah, the, the Motorola X, Moto X, whatever. Who I mean, I yeah, sure. So touch ID is patented maybe they're just trying to come up with something i mean i'm sure they were tasked with like hey make something like touch id for us um but what a horrible idea um for those who don't know you can now get a sticker 
uh, a sticker that you put on your body and it stays there for five days ish and it lets you unlock your phone via RFID by tapping your phone onto the sticker. Um, and it's a sticker that looks like an RFID tag. So it's a spiral of copper, um, but they've done different designs of spiraling copper for your personal flavor. Tribally. Yeah. Tribal, t- tribal spirals. But in the video, at least, they're real ugly. And um, But apparently we all spend something like 2.8 seconds every time we unlock our phone. Um, so think of all that lost productivity. Yeah. I just... I mean, you know, whatever you got to do to get a news cycle, I guess. I guess. But I can't imagine this is... Act- I mean, it's not a product, right? Yeah, it is. No. Yeah, it's a real product. Now, but this is, is this Modo or is this a third-party company? It's a third-party that Modo's working with. Okay, so it's not real. I mean, it's real in the sense that these guys think it's a good idea, but at yeah. least no, I, I'm I mean, a serious company. Right. Okay. That's fine. Whatever. I don't know. I mean, I do kind of like the idea of... Um, some people have sort of suggested that with the iWatch um, that they could do something pretty simple wherein if you're holding your iPhone on an arm that has an iWatch on it, it doesn't need to be unlocked. That right. seems pretty reasonable. Right. Um, things like that make sense. but Yeah. But they're not going to do the watch, right? Well, of course they are. You think so? Hell yeah. What are they going to do? Uh, it's going to have a Fitbit in it and... Okay. It'll vibrate when you get texts. See, you're one of like the few people who I think wants that. You have the, I mean, did you like the pebble when you had it? Um, did you find it useful? Um, I found it, it had hints of usefulness. It sort of, it, it gave you the flavor of usefulness, um, but then there were a lot of undertones. Of- I think the word you're looking for is novelty. No, because I mean, here's the thing. Like, there were there were multiple occasions where I actively thought, "Boy, that's really useful." Like pro- when, for example, um, at the rock climbing gym, I could leave my phone in the locker, and if I got a text message, I could get it on my wrist and look at it. Okay. Um, it was also actually really nice with our support calls and things um, to sort of right away know when a support call was coming in or to, you know, get the push notification from Zendesk. Um, huh. the, the problem was, so there were a couple of problems. One uh, broke twice. I didn't replace it the second time because by that point I just, I didn't want to bother with the hassle. Um, it was a little chunky. Battery life was not great, at least when I had it, although I gather that's gotten a lot better with newer firmwares. Um, but it's still like charge every day sort of great. no um even when i had it um it, you know on a good if you were in a good cycle in terms of firmware and everything you could get about a week um okay that's you know it was a little variable though because of some firmware bugs and things um so but it wasn't bad um and then the the biggest issue though and this is why i'm sort of leading up to saying the iwatch is a good thing the biggest issue was that it because it didn't have the level of os integration that you would need to do it well for example um push notifications were really hit or miss in terms of being able to control what went to your wrist and what didn't um in 
aside from sort of exploiting some bugs in iOS, um, your best, your, your, all you could do was say either everything goes to my wrist or nothing does, right. um, which is, you know, kind of annoying because there are some things that I want to sort of show up in notification center, but I don't necessarily want to be constantly in my face. Right. They um, could have fixed that on their side though. No, I don't think they could have because of the way they have to work as like a Bluetooth device, you know, Bluetooth devices can only do certain things in terms of how they get notifications. Right. Uh, I guess they, they could have added like out of band filter. filtering. Yeah. Maybe there's not enough information in the notification. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, in any case, so there were lots of things to like about it. I mean, you know, and again, I've mentioned this before when I first had it. Um, it was really fantastic when I was out walking in the winter um, because here in Minnesota, you're wearing gloves that don't work with touchscreens. You're wearing multiple layers. Um, you know, your phone is buried within you somewhere and you can usually still get to your wristwatch. And so when you have a call coming in, you want to know who it is or a text message comes in and you want to read it. Um, you know, you can take a look quick and then decide how you want to act on that. Hmm. I don't know. So, I wear a regular watch, like an analog watch. Yeah. And I think it would, I don't know. I'd be hard pressed to replace it with something, especially if it looks like these Google ones do. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I, uh, I do think they're going to make it. Um, and I, you know, I think it'll be also really interesting. Um, there's lots of, chatter that it's going to go to market with um some health technologies that we haven't seen before so um you know pulse monitoring uh blood oxidation monitoring you know there's there's a fair amount of stuff that sensors exist for that can be done externally now yeah Yeah, um monitoring yeah blood oxygen content monitoring pulse monitoring um i don't know if i forget what the other cool stuff i've seen is i can tell what you ate yeah, um, so I, it, I think it'd be interesting if they did that kind of thing. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, and I think you know it has interesting possibilities for connected home stuff and whatever else, where the phone is a good step into that field. But ha- counting on you always having your phone on you in order to perform operations in your house isn't necessarily a good bet so you know what you do always have on you tattoos mm-hmm. yeah i would get an apple tattoo just get an rfid i mean i would get one of those things injected under my skin too yeah but you know i'm not sure i'd want like the kid at the apple bar doing that <laughs> uh, yeah um so what else do you want to talk about? You want to talk about metadata? Sure, let's talk about metadata. Woo Let's not change my mind. And no, I was just stopping to ponder all the ways in which I was gonna work um the expression meta into this uh conversation. I wanted to let's get ready. Oh god, no. Yeah. Um yeah, so why are we talking about metadata? So are you saying that we're having a conversation about metadata? Uh, don't. No. Don't make me hang up on you. Um, so metadata is a real mess. and How do you know? Because our app Edit Ready is, um, among other things, a full-featured metadata viewer and editor. Oh, okay. And, and you wrote all that, so. One of the things we... 
Yeah, one of the things we discovered in, in working on that is that um, there's a lot of stuff out there, um, and it's fairly underutilized, I suspect, because it's kind of a pain to work with. Um, yeah. So why don't you go over what's out there and why it's a pain? Yeah. So um, thinking just in terms of sort of files coming off cameras, um, there are, and, and we'll limit ourselves just to QuickTime files for the moment, there are a couple different places within the file that metadata can live. Um, and there's no standardization in terms of what that metadata might be. Uh, Apple has a list of sort of suggested metadata items that include things like, you know, director and real name and, and a few other things. You're right. Things uh, that... Yeah. Um, and then camera manufacturers are welcome to put anything else in there. And so some manufacturers include um, information about lenses, um, or firmware versions. A lot of manufacturers include data that is totally um, uh, opaque. So as a third-party application, there's no concept of what that data is. It's only useful generally when you're playing back that same file within the camera. Um, but it gets a little more confusing than that because out in the wider world, outside of just you know recording a file on a camera, there are lots of other ways of storing metadata in a file. Uh, if you ever shot a still image on a digital camera, you've probably recorded EXIF data, E-X-I-F, and that's a standard for recording, um, structuring metadata and then storing it within things like image files. And some manufacturers actually put EXIF data, EXIF metadata inside a metadata key inside a file and so you've got sort of multiple tiers of metadata uh, the same is true with any adobe application adobe has its own scheme called xmp that's actually stored within a metadata key uh, within a quicktime file and then you also have uh, some cameras that if you're recording like an mpeg transport stream they actually have their metadata attached within um the stream itself it's not sort of all at the front because there's no front in a transport stream and so the metadata is sort of striped into the file and can actually have some completely different attributes um, compared to a quicktime file where the metadata or quicktime file of today where the metadata is all sort of in a big chunk at the start or at the end of the file um, and there's just what makes this so confusing and why a lot of people get turned off from it is that what you would think is metadata helps me move my data around between different parts of my workflow. I start out and maybe I bring all my footage in through Adobe Prelude and use it to organize everything, but then maybe I want to go out to Resolve and do some work in Resolve, and then you know maybe I need to do a quick uh, trailer cut for the web, and I'm going to do that in Final Cut X. And you would think metadata makes it really easy to sort of keep track of everything as you move through that. Uh, but the reality, of course, is that all of those players have a completely different notion of what metadata in a file should be, and none of them work with each other's metadata structure. Right. I think a lot of people assume that when they log, that is metadata in this sense, whereas most of the tools you use to do log and capture, log and transfer, um, actually don't attach that all of that information that you log to the file they put it in their project and just sort of relate it to the clip in your browser view yeah and sometimes for good reason um to get a little bit more technical for the moment um the way a quicktime movie is structured 
oftentimes the start of the file is um, the movie header that has the information about how to decode the file. It says this file is a ProRes file, and this is where you can find all of the frames, and this is it has an audio track of this sort and whatever. And then the rest of the file from, you know, 10, 10 kilobytes in, something like that, or 100 kilobytes in, the rest of that is all ProRes data. Um, so if you wanted to sort of inject 100K of metadata into that header, uh, you have to, depending on how your application works, you may have to rewrite the whole file if you want to keep the movie header at the front. And at a minimum, you have to do a lot of sort of munging of the file, which is a risky operation. Um, anyone who's ever run across the this case where I've been dealing with recently, where you bring a file into Final Cut 7, and as you're bringing that file in, Final Cut 7 crashes, it can actually leave your source media completely unplayable because in the process of importing, Final Cut wants to change some metadata and it has to rewrite that header. And in, if it crashes during that process, it might not actually write out a valid header. Corrupt your file. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, obviously that gets back to the fact that QuickTime is a 30-year-old mess. Um, but... So what I hear you saying is that we shouldn't put our metadata in the clips and we should put it in a text file next to the clips. Well, now that creates some other issues um, because now you have to keep track of two files. And right. So, for instance, a lot of cameras or some cameras and some editing systems like uh, Adobe products will sometimes put their metadata in a what's called a sidecar which is just a file with you know with the same name and a different file extension so .xmp for xmp metadata or something like that and everyone's just supposed to know and uh, play along with the convention that if you have a movie and a .xmp file with the same name that the .xmp file is the metadata describing it and that creates some issues uh, because people aren't very good at keeping track of things digital asset managers are surprisingly poor at keeping track of sort of groups of files Um, and people too yeah and so there's no sort of um magical solution to this what we've tried to do with edit ready is uh because there's no unified standard, because Adobe's always going to focus on just their XMP stuff, and and you know they do read some other things from QuickTime, but so they're going to do their thing. Apple's going to do their thing with their um, they use what's called the um, meta, the key ILST um, atoms within a QuickTime file to store reverse DNS key and value, um, but they store all their stuff inside the QuickTime file. Um, Canon is going to continue to sort of stuff weird EXIF bundles into the UData atom of a QuickTime file, etc. What we've tried to do with EditReady is just see what's in your source file, parse it out into things that make sense to us, um, so we know that you know this is how XMP stores a real name, for example, and then we can copy that information into all of the fields that we, you know, that it makes sense to copy it to. So if your cam, if your file comes in and the real name is set on the time code track of your QuickTime file, which is another place it can be set. We're going to copy that into um, 
the key that Final Cut X is looking for, the key that Final Cut 7 is looking for, the key that Adobe is looking for, uh, etc. And that's how we do that. Is that the best way to do it, Mike? I don't know. It seems, I mean, it seems to work. Um, I think it's the best way to do it. I haven't heard of a better way to do it. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, the disadvantage of it, of having duplicated keys in multiple places, is that they can get out of sync and not match. Right. Um, but that doesn't become less of a problem if we don't write them. I mean, the fact that different editors are looking in different places. So um, I was helping a friend debug a workflow problem the other day. Um, he has footage in, that he's trying to use in Premiere and then um, output and conform in Shake and go to Luster. Um, funny thing, if you change a real name in Premiere, it just changes the XMP. It doesn't rewrite the time code track. Mm-hmm. And Scratch, when it does its conform, looks in the time code track. And so... <laughs> If, for instance, you get a bunch of stock footage, all of which has a real name unset, and you go through the trouble of setting them all in an Adobe product, you still haven't set them as far as Scratch is concerned. Um, so, you know, so this is this is a problem, you know, no matter what you do, because all of these because these keys exist, whether or not they're written in a file doesn't matter. What matters is whether the ones that are written are written in the same places that the people who you need to read it are reading. Um, and we do have, you know, in our interface, we have a nice way of showing you that there's a, that there's a logical similarity between multiple keys. So there's a number of places where real name can be stored we group all those together in our interface and we actually show you if there is an inconsistency between the various keys. Um, If you've used that already, you've seen this with creation date because creation date is always logically inconsistent Um, because the writer will write out a time and then the file, the finder will go and change the creation date when you close the file and, you know, pushing it back a little bit. Um, and so we show these things with these conflicting value tags in our metadata editor, which tells you, you know, there are real names stored in four places and they're not all spelled the same. You might want to fix that quick. Yeah. And, you know, likewise, we have a really simple interface for resolving those conflicts. And I think that's about the best you can hope for in this world. Yeah. You know, one thing I've always wondered about, um, even going back to the DV days, there, I remember um, a JVC camera we used to have had basically a button on it that you could use to flag shots as good or no good. Um, and that data, actually, I recall that data, you could capture that data via DV. Um, but it doesn't seem like we've really gone that far on, moved that far on from that in terms of being able to set interesting arbitrary metadata within your recordings. 
I mean, so the Blackmagic Pocket and Cinema Camera has a little metadata editor. Yeah. Uh, is it the kind of thing that you think people would actually use? I don't know. I mean, if you were on set and you were DP, you, I would hope you would at least change it to something other than birds and wildlife or whatever it's always set to by default. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if most people do that or not. Um, you know, when you get into those like camera workflows, it seems to be everybody does it differently. Yeah. yeah. And I guess um, on the higher end of the market, I think there are some cameras with external sort of Wi-Fi iPad apps or even just web interfaces for doing that. Yeah. Which probably makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, you still need the person is the problem, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I uh, I mean, that's sort of our thinking with that already is like the only time anyone ever watches all or like deals with all the footage from a shoot in a coherent fashion is when they're loading it into edit. That's like the one time every other time it's like, Oh, I've got these seven compact flashcards. Oh, I only have six now. I don't know where the last one went. You know, the only time there is a like ground truth of footage in a production, it's when it's being loaded into edit. Cause if it's not loaded into edit, it's not footage. It doesn't matter. It's just, you know, backup costs. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we made Edit Ready not as like an onset camera tool, not as, uh, you know, digital asset management thing. It's like a tool for editors to load footage to, and, you know, because they're the ones who have to deal with all these problems if they're not resolved. <laughs> right. Hmm. Um, you know, some of this comes back to, uh, as I mentioned, the fact that sort of QuickTime as a transport isn't ideal, but it doesn't seem like any of the more modern formats have really solved this in a more interesting way either. I mean, I guess, you know, what you get with an MXF or something is that uh, you at least have it articulated as a standard, but... Um, you know, I, mean, what, I mean, the big thing MXF has done is made it more... Um, culturally like acceptable to have a bunch of files that you have to keep that's true you know i mean what you know the big thing they've done is the same thing that the camera manufacturers have been trying to do for a long time which is make the file structure opaque you do not touch it you do not rename anything you do not copy files out of it you do not do anything like these are your files think of them as one file yeah um there i mean Judging by our support tickets and the number of people who buy Cliprap, that has not been successful. Right. <laughs> well, and, you know, Apple's gone so far as to special case AVCHD to make it look like a bundle. Which is uh, brilliant. If, I mean, you know, if, if they could do the same thing for XD, uh, for MXF, that might go a long ways, but obviously that doesn't help on Windows. Right. Um, it's just, it's, yeah, it's odd to me. I mean, what would you do differently? Well, I guess part of my issue is that all of these formats that are based on um, what has happened here? I, What's happened where? Oh, I think something was sitting on my keyboard and it went to expose. Oh. Uh, I was very confused. Um, I don't, I just don't like XML. Um, and I think part of the problem is that 
XML does not make it easier to move data between diverse applications um, because of the way people actually implement XML. Um, and I don't know that, that, I mean, there's not really a solution for that. Aside it doesn't make it worse. Rigid standards. No, it doesn't. I mean, what it, it does it is least, it gives you a false promise. Yes, that's probably more accurate. And what it says is if someone cares enough, it is possible to move this data between applications. There's nothing proprietary. It's all right here. Right. What it doesn't say is this is what a real name should look like. Right. Exactly. I feel like the industry would be better off if, you know, someone with the, if someone had the power to do it, they created a standard for that. I think our, we're too fragmented at that at this point for that to be possible. Well, I mean, look at, you know, look at final cut XML. That's gotten fairly widespread adoption. Final cut seven. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, one of the big problems, I mean, you look at the MXF standards and like one of the problems with these things is there's a lot, of, you know, the sheer breadth of things people are trying to do with video and the workflows they're trying to support means that if you try to make an all-encompassing standard, it will be too complex for any vendor to implement it fully. Right. If you want because to... There's, you know, like there's no way that, you know, someone trying to support, you know, the type of customers that we're supporting, for instance, would implement it the full, like any one of these major specs now like we're going for subsets of them because that's what's in use in the in the real world yeah yeah i mean you know if anyone if you really want to sort of hurt your brain go download the three volume xmp spec and think about what it would take to implement a sort of complete implementation of xmp right um it's pretty insane but I mean, in their defense, Adobe does provide a framework for that. They do, yeah. Does it help much? I haven't looked at it. Um, we did not. Use yeah, it. it doesn't help us, but yeah. Anyways, so metadata, it's a mess, but it's slightly less of a mess if you try edit ready. Yay. Also, if anyone happens to have an MXF camera that writes out really awesome metadata, and wants to share it with us, that would be useful. For no for no particular reason. No. But please email us. Yes. Um, do you have any chatter this week? I didn't look any up. Um, you know, mantis shrimp are too dumb to see <laughs> all their colors. I think that's called a callback. Apparently. A throwback? Yeah. Um... I don't. Do you have one? Well, I quick Google. Um, I, you know, my chatter this week is not so much a chatter as a reminder, um, which is that tomorrow, or maybe today, depending on when I get this edited, uh, July 24th, uh, Yosemite public beta will be coming out. So anyone who's not a developer will have the opportunity to download and install Yosemite OS 10, 10.10. Um, oh, yeah. That'll be nice. Please don't, don't. Please don't do that on your production machine. Just that, that was my reminder is um, not everything will work and you're, you're going to really regret it if you like, especially, you know, if you run Avid, don't install Yosemite. 
um, or any of the Adobe apps. If you're going to take or, Scopebox out in the field that day, don't install Yosemite. Yeah. I, Things like that. Things that have to continue to work. Yeah. I mean, we are testing, but we are not done testing, or we would have shipped a version that supports it. And that is true of everyone. Yeah. That's uh, true of DaVinci yeah. Resolve. That is true of... Yes, we, we will obviously have support before Yosemite launches, um, but you know, remember that Avid still doesn't work quite right on OS 10, 10.9.4, and that's been out for a while, um, and that was a point release. So just don't install it on your production machine, even though it's free. Mm, free. Uh, what did I want to... Oh, I know what I'm going to chatter about there is a new app on the mac app store called lattice um if you have to play with um what files it's worth taking a look at it's a mac um what maker joiner converter um it seems well done and it's always cool to see new people entering the sort of indie market for video apps. Yeah, definitely. We wish Check it out. Well. It's good. It's um, it's really interesting. Hopefully, lots of people buy it, and they will continue working on it, and it will get even cooler. Yes. And if you need some cool tools to use with the LUTs you create, uh, talk to us. Yeah. All right. That was my pitch. Good work. So what did you think of that conversation we had about metadata? Uh, don't even start with me. I got to go. I got to go do something else. Anything other than let's stick around for that punchline. Uh, I'm trying so hard to fix. I mean, figure out another one. Um, okay, I'll just hang up now. And then I'll edit in a bunch of jokes about metadata throughout the conversation we just had. Oh, great. Yeah, I think those would be called meta jokes. <laughs>